Hello. My name is my name is Lucas Rumpel. My parents are Tim and Melanie Rumpel. I've grown up going to church and being taught about God's love in my home. When I was in grade five, my family and I came to Cornerstone. It was hard for me to leave my friends or leave the church that I knew and all of my friends there. But over time, I've come to love going to Cornerstone and I've made new friends here. I also like serving at the church by doing video switcher and AV for the kids in large group downstairs. I have seen God working in my life when I've had problems. Screen time has been an issue that I've had to talk to God about a lot. I love to read my Bible. I am very interested in the history and facts in it. One of my favorite passages is Psalms 23. I want to be baptized today because I want to live my life for Jesus. I want to love and serve him for the rest of my life. Yes, thanks, Lucas. If you have a copy of the scripture, if you brought one with you, and if you didn't, there should be one relatively close under a chair in front of you. I'm going to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. And I want to read uh, and preach from a passage of scripture this morning that I think sheds some light on why we um, why we're celebrating so much in baptism, why we are glad to make a big deal of baptism, why we're glad to fill a tank with 2,700 liters of water and heat it up to a toasty 33 degrees Celsius, uh, and uh, we'll do that any Sunday of the year, and we'd probably do it on a Wednesday too, uh, because uh, Jesus told us to, what to be on about as a church. He said to us, as you're going about your life, Make disciples from among all the nations of the earth, from among all kinds of people. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you to do. That's what Jesus says we're to be on about as a church. And so we want to be on about those kinds of things. And so um, baptism is this sign of initiation into a life of being a disciple of Jesus, which means being an apprentice of Jesus, learning to live life with him as our teacher, our leader, our Lord, our master, our savior and redeemer. It's the, it's the first step. The, the sign of baptism isn't for those who, are, who, who have like graduated to a certain level of maturity in faith, who aren't like all-star Christians, super spiritual you know, they've done uh, three missions trips, and, and they teach five Sunday school classes, and they've, you know, it's not for those who have got it all together, who've cleaned up their life really, really good. It's for those who are taking that first step of saying, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord. You're my master and king. And I'm taking this first step to, de to declare that, to publicly say, yes, Jesus is Lord. That's baptism is is that first step in that great commission from Matthew 28. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Get them started in a life of discipleship, and then keep them going. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you to do. Teach them to obey Jesus as our Lord and Master and Teacher. And so, baptism is this initiation, step number one. There's a thousand steps after, 
But step number one is, if you're a believer in Jesus, we would invite you to be baptized. If you are saying yes to Jesus, you are Lord, you're my Lord, you're my Savior, we would invite you to be baptized, and we'll do that any day of the week, any day of the year. And so we, well, just so you know, if you're thinking, man, maybe one day I'd like to be baptized, about four times a year, we pick a date and say, we're gonna, we hope to do baptism on this date. You can sign up. But in between those, if you want to get baptized, talk to one of the pastors. There's a form on, on our website, and, and we'll pick a date then to suit you. So either, either of those work. Our next date that we're going to pick will be in May. But if you want to get baptized before then, we'll do that. We'll gladly do that. Colossians chapter 1. Hopefully you turn there. I didn't. So give me a sec. Colossians 1. We're going to begin at verse 15. This is a, it's a, it's a well-known passage of Scripture. Um, it's about the centrality of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And as we read it, especially the first part, which is this beautiful poem, I want you to pay attention to that word, all things, or everything. Those things mean the same. All things and everything. In fact, it's the same Greek word. But see how often this phrase shows up in this poem. And then there's this explanatory paragraph after. Colossians 1, beginning of verse 15. He, that's Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but Now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there's so much uh, teaching material here. There's, a, there's probably a sermon series or two here in this passage. For example, even that very first line, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, I could spend a lot of time this morning talking about how this, that little phrase, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, relates to the second commandment. You know the Ten Commandments? Kind of a big deal in the Old Testament. First commandment was, you'll have no other gods before me. Don't worship another god. The second, sometimes we get mixed up because it sounds exactly the same. You shouldn't have a graven image of God. He's like, That's, isn't that the same thing? Don't have an idol? Well, it's, it's slightly different. It's, what, what God is saying in the second commandment is, don't make a physical image of me. 
and worship me through a physical image. So don't take your gold or bronze and make a calf and bow down and worship me through that calf like the Israelites did 10 minutes later. Don't, Don't worship God how you think he should be worshiped. Don't worship God or a version or an image of God that you want. Don't worship God on your terms. Worship God on his terms. Worship God how he says he should be worshiped. Don't imagine God to be how you want him to be, making God in your own image. We could talk about, we could talk about he, Jesus, is the image of God, but God says don't make a graven image, don't make an image of God. And we talk about how we are, as humanity, made in the image of God. But Jesus come, and Je- but that image of God is marred in us. It's, it's, we're fallen from it. It's broken, defective in us. But Jesus has come as the true image bearer of God. If so this is saying here, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He's the image of God. If you want to know the character of God, look at the character of Jesus. You want to know the priorities of God? Look at the priorities of Jesus. He, why? Because all of the fullness, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him because Jesus is the image of God. Now, it's this whole idea of don't, don't worship an image of God that you create in your own mind. Don't, don't create this version of God and worship that, but worship the one true God as he has revealed himself to be. And he's revealed himself to be in Jesus. Now, as fallen human beings, we often take Jesus and we kind of reshape him into our own image. We create this version of Jesus that we think is real. The, 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 the kind of Jesus we want him to be. That's why we as a church keep talking about making the real Jesus non-ignorable. Making the real Jesus known. How do you know the real Jesus? As he's revealed himself in the scripture. And as he reveals himself by spirit, as the spirit shines light on the scripture. That's why we as a church spend so much time in the gospels, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because we want to know the real Jesus. We want to know what he's on about. We want to know what his priorities are. We want to know what he's like. We want to know what he's done. And so we see this all around. There's this, these versions of Jesus, these, these kinds of Jesuses, even that we want to be. There's a poem that went around recently, and, and Jesus is quoted as saying, there's nothing, is, is saying to someone, there's nothing in this heart of yours that ever needs to be healed. Was that, is that the real Jesus? Would the real Jesus say that? There's nothing in this heart of yours that ever needs to be healed? No, the real Jesus says you must be born again. So we want to worship the real Jesus, and we don't want to make an image out of God. We don't want to make an image out of Jesus. We want to look at the real Jesus. He, because he is the image of the invisible God. He makes the invisible God visible in this world. And how do you get to know the real Jesus? In the scripture. That's why we immerse ourselves as disciples of Jesus in his word. So I could spend all kinds of time talking about that and teaching on that very phrase, as I did for four minutes just there, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, this morning, as I said, I want to focus on the, that little word, all things, or everything, and how that shows itself up, shows up in this great poem that either Paul wrote, inspired by the Spirit, or someone else wrote, and Paul is quoting it, we're not quite sure, but it's this inspired poem, um, or maybe even song, of the early church. 
Now, I've, I've taught this way before, but one of the, to, if you, for Bible nerds out there, one of the things we often look for is what are called chiasms or chiasms, depending on the scholar you listen to, uh, which are kind of like a, an arrow in a text. So there'll, there'll be a, a series of ideas that correspond to each other. And so the first and the last correspond to each other. And then the second and the second last correspond to each other and the th- as we go. And then, but the point of it all is the point of the arrow. So the, the point of a passage is right in the middle of the text. I think, I, to be honest, I didn't spend a lot of time looking at scholars this week in this passage. I, I, I really approached this text a little more devotionally, but... I think there's a chiasm in this text that, t- that is a clue to what this text is all about. Do my slides work here? There they do. All right. So the first idea, the first time the word all things or everything appears in the text of verse 16, that all things were created by, through, and for Jesus. He's the creator of all things, of the first creation. All things were created by him and for him and through him. So all things were created to live in relationship with God, in this perfect relationship of harmony and unity and peace and love. The corresponding, the last time the way the word all things appears, is that through Jesus, God has reconciled all things to himself, that he is the author of the new creation, that all things are now possible to live in relationship of harmony and peace and love with God, that he's reconciled all things to God through him. Second, the B and the B prime. He is before all things. That's verse 17a. And he is uh, first place in everything. He is primary. He is first in everything. He existed before all things and he is first before all things. And then the point of it all, I think, by him all things hold together. By him. Verse 17b, by him all things hold together. That he holds all things together. The first half of this poem is about the first creation. And the second half is about the new creation. That Jesus is the firstborn of all creation in the first half. In the second half, he's the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn of the resurrection. He's the first one to rise from the dead as this preview of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. And in the middle, he holds it all together. He holds all things in first creation and in new creation. He holds them all together. That Jesus is central and supreme over all things. That he holds first first creation and new creation all together. Have you ever stopped to, to ponder this world that we live in? How there's, how there's so much that's good in this world. There's so much goodness and beauty. There's so much joy in this world. There's so much that you can... Like you step outside to see a sunrise or, and, and it takes your breath away. Or you look at the, the, the beauty of like little insects or leaves. Like there's so much beautiful, good, and joy in this world. But at the same time, there is so much evil. 
and ugliness and suffering and sadness. Has that juxtaposition kind of ever like hit you and made you wonder? One of my one of my favorite songs all time is uh, "Don't You Want to Thank Someone," written by, of course, Andrew Peterson. It's about nine minutes long, so I can't quote it or play it for you now. But but listen to this song this week. Don't you want to thank someone? And he's and he's pondering this thought, and it's brought me to tears so many times. Of of, the, of in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much good. Why is there so much beauty and, and brokenness? How do those things coexist? How do you make sense of a world of such extremes? But he holds all things together. Jesus holds all things together. In the old creation, he created all things. All things were created by him and through him and even for him. And so when you look at this world and you see something so beautiful, you can remember that it's like that because of Jesus. Because he's beautiful. You look at this world and you see wise design and you're like, wow, it's like that because of Jesus. You see the grandeur, the power, the majesty of creation, you say it's like that because of Jesus. But but it's fallen and broken. It's fallen from its original intent. That we have fallen from the vision that God had for us when he made us. And so he has acted in this world to heal and redeem and restore and renew. So this same one who made all things has come to make all things new. And he's unveiled his new creation in the resurrection of Jesus. And we're invited to belong to it. And so we see, even in this poem, we see this great trajectory, this great storyline of the Bible. We see creation in its goodness, but the fall, and then redemption and new creation. And Jesus holds all of those things together. He's the author of creation, and he's the author of the new creation. And so you have this grand, big story of all of history and all creation, all created things, all people of all times. You have this big story, and sometimes you can get lost in it, right? And sometimes you're like, where, where do I fit in that? And so the Apostle Paul gives us, in verses 21 to 23, I think it's like the, it's the you are here sticker on the mall sign, right? If you're in a mall and you see the, on the kiosk, you see the big, the big sign, the big map, but it's, it's really not helpful unless you know where you are on that map. Well, verses 21 to 23 are the big you are here sign. He says, you were outside. You were outside. You were alienated and hostile in your minds. By your creation, by your, by your nature, you entered in this world alienated from God. Hostile towards God. It's not, that, it's not that God abandoned us. It's not that God abandoned you. It's that we have declared war on God and fired the first shot against him. We have abandoned him. We have strayed from him. We're alienated. We're hostile. In our minds, we have all these wrong ideas about God. Our minds are filled with 
all kinds of muddled thinking. We think sin is fun, and God wants me to be miserable. I think if I go my own way, I'll be happy, and I'll have a great time, and I'll be fulfilled. This is going to make me happy if I do what I want to do. God's just a cosmic killjoy out to ruin our good time. We have all kinds of muddled thinking, hostile thinking. We're hostile in our minds. We're alienated from God in our minds, and that gets expressed in the way in which we live. Expressed in our evil actions. It's not just that we have wrong ideas about God. It's that we've then put those wrong ideas into practice, and we live lives out of sync with God, out of sync with the vision that he has for us when he made us, out of sync with the, the way he's made this world, out of sync with reality out of relationship with him, hostile towards him. And then Paul says, as he often does, he uses the, the word but. But, God, but now. One pastor I know says these are one of the big buts of the Bible, but, <laughs> but I wouldn't say that. But now we are brought in. But now we're brought in. We're brought into the family. We were outside, but we were brought in. You were alienated, but he's adopted you as a son or his daughter. You were excluded from the worship of God, but now you're brought in to the temple and you can worship him. You're in his very presence because you've been reconciled by the death of Jesus. Oh, it's beautiful to see reconciliation. Maybe you've experienced reconciliation. Someone that you've been at odds with. Someone with whom relationship was broken. But you've been brought back together. You've been brought back together into relationship through forgiveness. Through he that healing of relationship so that you're together. You're, 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 in, you're in right relationship again. Oh, it's to, to live a life of peace and blessing and love with someone with whom you were hostile is so beautiful. How much more then to live reconciled to God when we were alienated and hostile from him so that we could be in his presence holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Believer in Jesus, that's your standing before God today. I know you sinned 10 minutes ago, but right now God sees you as holy, faultless, and blameless in his presence. Why? Because of the death of Jesus for you. If you're like me, you're tempted to think back on the ways in which you've messed up over the years. You think back of particular things that cause you great shame. that cause pain right in the depths of your soul. And you're like, wow, I was, I was so wrong. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. And that shame can be overwhelming, right? Holy, faultless, blameless. Because the death of Jesus has covered it completely. Completely. 
Oh, you have an enemy of your soul who wants to accuse you, who wants to say you can't be in God's presence. You're sinful. You sinned 10 minutes ago. You're sinning right now. You can't be in God's presence. I love, in those moments, I love to quote this beautiful hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. You know that hymn? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, my Christ, my Savior, and my God. You see, the enemy of your soul or your own conscience accuses you. You can say, yes, I am a great sinner, but yes, Jesus is an even greater Savior because he has made an end to all my sin. And the scripture tells me that in Christ, united with him, I stand before God, holy, faultless, and blameless. There is no accusation. Who is it that will accuse you? If God is for you, who can be against you? Oh, brothers and sisters, we have access. We have standing before God above through the death of Jesus because he has reconciled us to God. We were alienated and hostile, but through the reconciliation, uh, through the death of Jesus, he has brought us in. And so keep going. So keep on. Persevere in the faith. Remain steadfast and grounded in the faith. There are all kinds of pressures that want to seek you, to lead you away from loyalty to Jesus, from, from, uh, from your allegiance and loyalty to Jesus. There's all kinds of pressures that will seek to deny you, that for, for you to deny your faith in him in the public sphere, or to at least downplay it. I'm not that crazy. I'm not that sold out for Jesus. I don't take my faith that seriously. No, he is our life. He is our great rabbi, our great teacher and master. And so he says, stay the course. Remain grounded. Remain steadfast in your faith. Don't be shifted away from the hope of the gospel. Don't be distracted away from the good news of Jesus that he has reconciled you to God through the death of his son for you. He says that gospel has been proclaimed in all of creation. You see, it goes back to this poem, right? It's this big, huge storyline that God is reconciling all things, all created things to himself. And because of that, you and I as created things get caught up in that. Therefore, it's for us. It's for you and for me. And so I'd invite you to, to find your place in this great story that God is writing for all creation. He is writing this story. The story of reconciliation. That you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in condemnation. 
You don't have to live alienated from God and hostile towards him. You can be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus for you. You can be a disciple of Jesus. You can begin that life today, and you can continue it on today. Some of you have been following Jesus for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Keep on. Remain grounded. Remain steadfast. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope in the gospel. It's true. It's all true. And one day we will see it with our own eyes as he makes us new, as, he, as we rise again and enter into his kingdom in all of its fullness in the new heavens, in the new earth. And so keep on to that hope in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, what a day it is to celebrate your grace to us again. Jesus, we acknowledge you as central over all things and supreme over all things, that all things are held together in you, old creation and new creation. And thank you, Jesus, that you hold us together. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made peace with God possible through your death on the cross for us and your resurrection from the dead for us as that foretaste of the new creation that we get to participate in. And Father, I pray for my friends in this room or watching online, and I pray that all of us would give our hearts towards you again, would turn towards Jesus and look with faith so that we could believe the new identity we've received as holy, faultless, and blameless children of God, and that we would live with confidence in that new identity that you've given us that we'd live lives that are free and secure. And so, Holy Spirit, minister among us as we worship you, as we witness Lucas's baptism. Would you give us comfort and joy as we, as we celebrate your grace? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you, if you're able to stand with us, let's respond to the word.